Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. We'll be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 8 as we continue our, our study through this marvelous gospel. It's John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. It's a joy to hear so many of the kids in church this morning, by the way. And I do mean that sincerely. For the same word that works in our hearts can work in their hearts as well. And what a joy it is to hear their presence uh, in church this morning. So before we read and, and hear from God's Word, let's go to Him once more in prayer, ask his, asking His blessing. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open our hearts this morning that we might behold marvelous things from Your Word. Even as we learned in Sunday school this morning, make the reading, but especially the preaching of Your Word an effectual means of grace in our hearts. That the faithful might be encouraged, encouraged in their faith, and that the faithless may find faith in their heart that You've placed there for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 15, verses 1-8. through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen? I'd like to ask you this morning to consider this question as we look at this passage of Scripture and ask yourself how you respond to being corrected. How do you respond to being disciplined? How do you respond to receiving instruction? In the book of Proverbs, uh, wisdom and folly are personified as two women. Lady Wisdom is beautiful to behold. Her words are faithful and true. Her house dwells in security and blessing. And Lady Wisdom calls out to the, the simple-minded, the foolish even, the unlearned, and the humble to follow after her. 
Her instructions adorn the ones who learn from her and cherish her and follow her. Her house is secure. Her path leads to life and her words are righteous and pure and true. Lady Wisdom is contrasted, on the other hand, with Lady Folly in the Proverbs. Lady Folly is seductive. She entices the weak, the unlearned, the simple, and the foolish to follow her as well. She is attractive to behold, but she's lazy, a drunkard. Her path is easy, but her road leads to death. And her words are full of deceit and lies. What separates those who follow Lady Wisdom and those who follow Lady Folly in the Proverbs? You know what it is? It is those who receive instruction and correction and reproof. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 12, verse 1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 12, verse 15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. How do you receive instruction, correction, and discipline? Do you follow Lady Folly? Or do you follow Lady Wisdom? You'll know by the way you receive correction and reproof. In John chapter 15, in our passage today, Jesus uses a, a, another metaphor for us. It's a farming metaphor, isn't it? To instruct His disciples about how to be more fruitful. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll learn uh, from this passage. There's one vine, one true vine, and that's Jesus. And there are two kinds of branches. There's the fruitful branches... And there are the unfruitful branches. Every fruitful branch is pruned. Every fruitful branch receives correction. Every fruitful branch receives reproof. But the unfruitful branches aren't pruned. They aren't fruitful because they aren't pruned because they can't be corrected. They can't be instructed. And they will not receive the Lord's discipline. And so they are plucked off the vine and tossed into the fire. How many of you know it's better to be pruned on the vine than plucked from it? I'd rather be pruned on the vine than plucked from it. And that is what Jesus is telling His disciples. You've got two options. You can either be pruned on the vine... Or you can be plucked from the vine. So you better get comfortable receiving instruction and correction and reproof because it is the Lord making you more fruitful. And if He doesn't discipline you, you're not truly 
in the vine. And one day, you'll be plucked from it. Well, how do we get in the vine? If it's better to be pruned on the vine than plucked from the vine, how do we get on the vine? First, I want to show you in this passage, tells us in verse 1, that we have to have a vine to be attached to to begin with. You and I need a vine to be attached to to begin with, and that is Jesus. Look there in verse 1. Jesus says what? I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine in place of the unfruitful vine. Did you know that there was another vine in Scripture? An unfruitful vine? This symbolism of a vine and and a fruit that grows off of it was a common uh, designation for God's people in the Old Testament for Israel. And they're often described in that way as God's vine. In Psalm 80, Israel's captivity in Egypt and their deliverance out of Egypt is described this way in Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So you get the idea, right? This transplanting, right? That the Lord sees Israel in Egypt and He takes that vine and He carries that vine to the promised land, clears the field and plants His vine there. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land is what Psalm 80 says. So the Lord took a vine out of Egypt, He took it to the promised land, and it filled and grew in the land. In Ezekiel 17, this is used. The Lord, He took the seeds of the land and planted it in a fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. And its branches turned toward Him. And its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. So you get this imagery here that the Scripture's using of Israel as this vine that the Lord has planted in the promised land. And they have grown very prosperous just as a great vine would fill a vineyard. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is called a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. This even brings great hope to the exiles in Hosea chapter 14, verse 7, that they'll return and they shall blossom like what? The vine. What great hope that was for God's people. The temple itself even, there was a large protruding building in the temple called the Holy Place. And from afar, you could see the Holy Place over the walls of the temple. And on the top of that structure was artwork. And do you know what that artwork was? I bet you can guess. It was a vine. And through the years, it's reported that wealthy Jews, they actually gave gold and uh, different offerings to the temple, that might be more ornamentally adorned and beautified. And even Josephus reported that there were grape clusters that had been attached to that that were the size of a man. How awesome that must have been 
for Israel as they gathered for worship. That, that visual reminder to them as they came to the holy place for worship that they are God's vine. That He had taken them, that He had cared for them, that He had planted them, and they had grown. But this metaphor wasn't only used to describe Israel in a positive way. It also came to bear light when Israel sinned and God needed to judge her. In Isaiah chapter 5, when the Lord came to His vineyard for grapes, instead of grapes, He found wild fruit. And so the Lord declares, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. So you get this idea, right, that Israel is God's vineyard and rather than producing the fruit that God as the farmer, as the vine dresser, had right to demand of it, it bore wild grapes. And so the Lord declares, I'm going to judge my vineyard. The walls that protected it, I'm going to break it down. I'm not going to tend to it. I'm going to let it grow up wild. In fact, I'm not even going to let rain fall upon this vineyard so that it can wither away and die. In Hosea chapter 10, the once luxurious vine had become corrupt. Verses 1 and 2 say, The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Israel was to be God's fruitful vine. But time and time again, they had proven by their disobedience to be unfruitful. And it is against this historical and biblical context and background, perhaps even as Jesus and the disciples are walking together, looking over at the temple, perhaps even observing the artwork over the most holy place, that Jesus looks at the disciples in verse 1 and says, I'm the true vine. Israel had failed to bear fruit, but I bore the righteous fruit that the Father demanded on their behalf. That's what Jesus is saying here in this one simple verse. When the Father came and observed the life of Jesus, He didn't see disobedience in any single way, did He? He saw the fruit of righteousness and holiness in the life of Jesus. Jesus has been careful to communicate that to us already in the Gospel of John, that He only does what He sees His Father doing. He only says what His Father wants Him to say. He perfectly completes the will of God in every single way. So when we get to chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus is saying, Israel's not the vine. I'm the true vine, Jesus says. 
in this passage. We shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus has been telling us that He fulfills all the covenant requirements where Israel failed. In John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus turns the water into wine to prove that God always saves His best vintage from His vineyard for last. Isn't that awesome? In John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman at the well that the place of worship is not going to be at Mount Gerizim and Samaria or at the temple, but worship is going to take place where? In spirit and in truth. Through Jesus, the true temple. In John chapter 5, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people akin to the way that Moses fed God's people with the manna from heaven. And then in the context of that miracle, Jesus says what? I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that the Father has come to feed. I'm the one the Father has sent to feed His people. In John 8, Jesus says He's greater than Father Abraham. In John 10, Jesus declares that He's the good shepherd, the true shepherd over the true flock of God. Every place where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Every place where Moses failed, Jesus succeeded. Every place where Abraham failed and Adam failed to bear fruit in their life, Jesus is the true vine. He bore the perfect fruit that the Father required. He is the true vine. And that one verse alone tells us that we are fruitless outside of Him. Our culture today says that you can find your own way to God. You can earn your own way to God. You can find your own path. You can worship Him any way you want. You can, you can be connected to God through creation or, or through whatever you choose. And here Jesus is saying in this passage in verse 1, only when you are connected to the true vine can you have any sort of connection to God. His fruit must be accounted to you. You see, you and I on our own, we are unable to bear any fruit that is pleasing to God. We're covenant breakers. We violate God's law daily in thought, word, and deed. The very things that God tells us not to do, we do them. The very thing that God calls and commands us to do, we leave undone. But Jesus has come in our place to bear the perfect fruit of righteousness that God demands. So are you in the vine this morning? Are you connected to Him? Do you abide in Him? Do you know the sweet joy of His fruit being counted unto you? Have you abandoned trying to grow your own fruit and take rest in the fruit that the Lord Jesus Christ has bore in your place? Have you taken your rest in the Lord Jesus Christ today? If you have, then you know how sweet and wonderful it is to be connected to Christ. And if you haven't yet, let me call upon you to renounce your own fruit, to renounce your own way to God, and rest yourself in the perfect work of Jesus Christ.
Look to Him. Put your faith in Him. Trust in His work and your place that you in turn might receive the fruit of His righteousness. Jesus is the true vine in place of the unfruitful vine. So if Jesus is the true vine in place of the unfruitful vine, what happens to the unfruitful branches? Let's look at this together. What happens to the unfruitful branches? Well, I would argue that these unfruitful branches, we could call them nominal Christians. Christians in name only. They have an appearance. right? They're, they're in the vineyard, you might say. They're there. They appear to be connected to Christ, but they don't bear any fruit. They are Christians or disciples in name only. Nominal Christians are plucked from the vine, is what this passage says. Look at verse 2. Jesus makes that clear. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser, the Father, what does He do? He takes it away. That's a challenging preposition in verse 2 here. How can an unfruitful branch be in Christ? Because Jesus says here that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. It's a good question, isn't it? Don't load too much significance in a Greek preposition. Number one, this is a metaphor that Jesus is using, right? He's painting a picture for us of a vineyard, right? He's not establishing for us forensic justification in one single preposition. Some have speculated here that this is a reference, though, to those who are Jews, who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Or maybe it is apostate Christians that John is addressing here. I wouldn't strain a single preposition too much and load it with a great amount of theological significance when we have a whole lot of other Bible to deal with here in these verses. But what Jesus seems to be indicating here is that these fruitless branches appear to be connected to the vine. They are there. They have an appearance. And the Father is the farmer. He's the vine dresser. He's the fruit inspector. And so He comes through His vineyard and He is inspecting the branches looking for fruit. And when He finds a branch that does not bear fruit, He takes it away, is what Jesus says. Why does He do this? Verse 4 tells us, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The reason these fruitless branches are taken away is what? They're not really connected to the vine, are they? Verse 4 tells us and instructs us. They have an appearance that they're connected to the true vine, but the fruit inspector, the farmer has come, and he has determined that branch is not connected to the true vine. And then Jesus here, he draws out the metaphor to the final judgment in verse 6. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is what? Verse 6. Thrown away like a branch and withers. You get this idea here, right? Like you've been working in your garden. You've been working in your flower bed. And it's time to, to trim your roses back or trim back your, I don't know, whatever your green thumb grows at your house. And you trim it back. What happens when you cut those branches off from where they're connected? What happens after a couple of days? Well, like many of the other plants, potted plants inside your house, they wither and die, don't they? They wither away and die, verse 6 says. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered. This is a reference to the final judgment. The branches are gathered Thrown into the fire, Jesus says, and burned. That's the work of the farmer. He's the fruit inspector. And when he finds a fruitless branch, he is able to determine it's not actually connected to the true vine, no matter what appearance it may have at the moment. And so, at the final day, he removes it and it is taken away. How many of you know it is better to be pruned on the vine than plucked from it. This shouldn't surprise us. We see uh, here descriptions in other places in Scripture about nominal Christians, but how would you tell? How could you tell if someone is a nominal Christian? How could you tell if a person is a Christian in name only? Some people will say that we can tell if a person is a nominal Christian through church Discipline. Aha! That's what we use church discipline for. Isn't that right, Pastor? I mean, we're Presbyterian. We do everything decently and, and in order. And we have a, a book of church order. And, 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 and we have rules for discipline. And, and we have a chapter and the confession about that. And, and so, discipline tells us and notifies us in the church who are true Christians and who are nominal Christians. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I know all of you got up this morning and you read your book of church order like good Christians do. Chapter 27, paragraph 3 of the book of church order tells us that church discipline is for the glory of God, the purity of His church, and the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say that church discipline is to reveal those who are not actually Christians in the church. The purpose of church discipline is to reclaim those who are unrepentant who are in the church. Chapter 30 of the Confession, paragraph 3, gives us the purpose of church censures. Of church censures, right? Like admonition, suspension from the Lord's Supper, uh, deposing a man from office, and even excommunication from the church. The confession tells us that the purpose here is for what? Identifying nominal Christians? Nope. Reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. Isn't that interesting, the language that they use? So here you can have a person who's excommunicated from the church, and the confession calls that individual an offending brethren. And the purpose is to 
reclaim and to gain that offending brother, to, to deter others in the church from like offenses, to purge out the leaven of sin from the church that might infect the whole lump, to vindicate the honor of Christ, to adorn the profession of the gospel, and to prevent God's wrath from falling upon the church. In neither case, in our constitution of our denomination, in the confession of faith or the book of church order, do we identify church discipline as a means of identifying non-Christians? Is there a verse in the Bible that tells us to make our, our, our apostasy sure or certain? No! Scripture only calls us to do what? Make our calling and election sure. And even in the rare cases of excommunication, the goal is reclaiming the offender. The goal is to separate that person who has professed to be a Christian, to separate that person from the church for a season because they refuse to separate from their sin. And the moment that offending brethren separates from their sin, the church is to do what? Welcome and receive that offending brethren back into the church. If you have ever been run out of a church or hurt by a church, it's because church discipline wasn't done in a way that glorifies God. God only disciplines those He loves. And some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, can't we know by a public profession of faith, by membership interviews with the session, by their baptism, by their receiving of the Lord's Supper, by good works in the church? I mean, can't we know for certain if someone is a true Christian or a nominal Christian? And the answer is, we have to wait and see. Think about the parables that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 13. The parables of the soils and the seed. The same word is sown among different kinds of soil and it takes time to see what bears fruit. In that same chapter, Jesus gave the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The kingdom of heaven is like a field in which there was wheat and the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And at the end of the age, at the final harvest, the wheat and the weeds are separated from one another. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus used another parable, the parable of the nets, that the kingdom of heaven is like fishermen who go out, they cast out a net into the sea, and they draw all sorts of fish into their net, some good and some bad, and you don't know which is which until the end of the age. When the Lord calls forth the final judgment and the good and the bad, the fruitful and the fruitless are separated from one another. And that's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 15. Wait and see. You don't know who is fruitful and who is fruitless all the time. But the Father does. 
He knows who is truly connected to the vine, and we can trust Him. So if the fruitless branches are plucked away, what happens to the fruitful branches? Well, you, fruitful branches are doing so well. So he leaves them alone, doesn't he? No, that's not what this passage teaches at all. What happens to the fruitful branches? Look with me at verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he does what? He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Wait a minute. Why would you do that? Lord, those branches are doing so well. They're bearing so much fruit. And Jesus says, the Father comes and He prunes. Now, He must just prune just some of them, right? That's what Jesus says. Now, most of the branches are very fruitful. Some of the branches, though, they need a little help. So just a few of those he prunes. Is that what Jesus says in verse 2? No, that's not what he says. Who gets pruned? Every branch that bears fruit. Every branch that is connected to the true vine is going to get cut on. How many of you know it's better to be pruned on the vine than plucked from it? Why does he do this? So that it will bear more fruit. Jesus tells him in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. This fruit does not earn them their righteousness. This fruit does not earn them God's favor. Verse 3, Jesus says, you're already clean. I have declared you clean, is what Jesus is saying. I have declared you righteous. How many of you know righteousness that we receive from Christ is a gift of God's free grace? And here's the wonderful news as Christians. We know that the righteousness that we receive is by God's declaration. He declares us righteous when we're not. When we are disobedient, He comes and He saves us. And even though we haven't earned salvation, God looks upon that person and He says, you are clean, you are righteous. Christ's work accounts for you. Isn't that good news? The task then of the Christian is to do what? Remain in the vine. Abide in the vine. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the encouraging instruction for us as Christians then is that if we are in the true vine, guess what? We will bear fruit because we are abiding in Christ. We are in Him. Look with me at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that you will bear the fruit of righteousness that you begin to desire the will of the Lord and when you begin to pray according to the Father's will, He is pleased to grant that. What a blessing that is. And this in turn does what? Verse 8, By this my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit. What is the ultimate result of fruit that grows in our life. Well, it glorifies God, number one, but what does it do for us as Christians? 
What does it say there in verse 8? It proves to us that we are God's disciples. God already knows, doesn't He? He's the vine dresser. He's the fruit inspector. He's the farmer. He's the one who already knows who's truly connected to the vine and who's not. It is us who receive the blessing that as we see the fruit growing in our life, it proves to us, establishes in our minds that we are in Christ. My question for you this morning is, are you being pruned or plucked? Are you being pruned or plucked? Does God's Word regularly convict you of sin or do you avoid God's Word? When you gather together with God's people for worship, do you find yourself convicted when the law of God is read and do you find your heart overwhelmed with gratitude for the mercy and grace of God when you hear the assurance of pardon declared to you? Are you being pruned or plucked? Do you feel grief and sorrow for your sin? When you sin, are you grieved by your sin? If so, praise God. Oh, Pastor, I feel terrible about my sin. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful that you feel bad about your sin. Why? That's fruit in your life. Or do you lack grief and sorrow for your sin? Do you receive the trials and hardships in your life with joy, as 1 Peter says, knowing that God is disciplining you, that He's refining you, or do you blame God for your hardships and trials in your life? Are you being pruned or plucked? Do you receive the correction of a Christian friend, or do you deflect that correction? Do you seek out, when you make a decision, do you seek out godly counsel and godly wisdom? Or are you bent on being autonomous? When you offend someone, are you quick to repent and apologize and make restitution for your sin? Or do you shift blame onto the other person? Are you being pruned? Or are you being plucked? Because it's better to be pruned on the vine than plucked from it. The discipline of the Lord is not ever evidence that God has rejected us. And I want you to hear that. Because sometimes it can feel that way. When the Lord disciplines us, when He allows us to feel the consequences and the weight of our sin, when we feel the, the sorrow for our sin, when we experience that, when the, the light of God's countenance is removed from us for a season in our lives, it can feel like God has rejected us. But the Lord's discipline is never a sign of rejection, dear one. The Lord's discipline is always evidence that you are in Christ because He only prunes those who are connected to the true vine. God's purpose is in disciplining you, dear one, is not malicious. He is cutting on you. He is pruning you to make you more fruitful 
that you might glorify Him and prove to be His disciple. It's better to be pruned on the vine than plucked from it. Are you being pruned or plucked this morning? Let me pray for you.